0: From Kurt Media. This is
1: Cars That Matter.
0: This is Robert Ross. Welcome to another episode of Cars That Matter, We're recording this session, of course, remotely. We're still enjoying the pleasure of our own company and unfortunately no one else's, but I do have a video link with a very interesting guest today whom I will introduce presently. But first, let's think about cars for a moment, really, and take it back to the beginning. The world of childhood dreams is populated with all kinds of fantasies. But for me and for so many youngsters growing up, I think cars were really the the nucleus of those fantasies. They elicited all kinds of incredible imaginations. And growing up in the era when Disneyland had just opened in Southern California, I remember one of my first automotive experiences being puttering around and the, at the time was a fascinating little autopia. I, I couldn't believe such a thing existed. It was absolutely a key to a whole different world. And never mind that some of those <laughs> little fiberglass cars were as ugly as a Daimler SP250. It, it absolutely wet my whistle for automobiles. As we get older, if we're lucky, we get to fulfill some of those fantasies. And apart from dinosaurs and magic castles, cars are about the only ones that really can become real and tangible as we get older. That is a very long-winded way of introducing our guest today, Eddie Sato. Eddie, it's a great pleasure to have you here.
1: It's great to be here.
0: And the connection of course is that I've known Eddie for many years, fortunate to have shared any number of great conversations with him and we'll talk about those as we go through our program. But Eddie initially born in Hollywood, California, grew up around the whole Disneyland phenomenon and of course naturally eventually became the senior vice president of concept design at Disney Imagineering. Eddie, why don't you take us through your childhood growing up in LA and and then we'll talk about what you've been doing since 2004, which is of course, running Sato Studios LA.
1: Sure. You know, well, I was very much inspired by your just musings of childhood and the utopia, and it made me think about my own childhood. And of course, I born in Hollywood, but kind of grew up in Orange County. So I grew up not too far from Disneyland. And I was trying to think at this very moment of like, what is the first romantic memory that just addicted me to Cars too? And maybe some of your listeners will resonate with this number, And it's number 261. Now, what is number 261? Well, number 261 is the model number of Corgi toys... Aston Martin James Bond car, which had the ejector seat, and they gave you two bad guys. So if you lost the first bad guy, because it would shoot them out so far, and of course it had machine guns in the grill, and it had a fabulous shield that popped out above the trunk lid. And I think as a kid, this is taking a name I couldn't even pronounce, and indelibly at the age of four or five Putting the Aston Martin David Brown logo into a child's brain, and then all you could do was play with it, you know, after Goldfinger and Thunderball and all those Bond films. And, you know, when Hot Wheel Cars came out, which is probably modern car collectors' analog, right, of collecting those things, all these things of, of your childhood make a big impression. They sure do. As a teen, my father in the late 60s, around 1968, started buying black cars. You had to order a car black, like an American car. So he ordered a 1969 Mark III Lincoln in all black. Oh man, that
0: was a gorgeous car.
1: It was, and the neighbors kind of thought we were morose And my dad goes like, Eddie, no, it's just, trust me, it's going to be cool to have a black car like this. And people, what's, is it a hearse? I mean, what is this? (laughs) And I said, well, why is this important to me, dad? He goes, well, because you're going to dust it in the morning with the Chevron gas station wax treated little dusting cloth every morning. I said, but dad, I'm not big enough to reach the middle of the hood. You're going to have like white marks. He goes, well, okay, I'll do the rest, but you just kind of hit the high points for me. And that kind of started it. So one of my childhood things about growing up was washing my car as a teenager with my father. I mean, we didn't have a baseball field for Field of Dreams and he was a working guy from dawn till dusk. So on the weekends, just washing the car with your father was just a wonderful thing to sell the leather and waxing it and him showing me not to do it in the sun and all those things were just, and they still are. My father's still around and He'll smile when i say, hey, dad, can I come over and we wash the car together?
0: Isn't that fantastic? I think a lot of us, if we're fortunate to have had dads that were into cars, might remember those experiences. I know I sure do. And they're indelible. And they can <laughs> lead to bigger dreams and bigger accomplishments. Obviously, that's something that you did, Eddie. Obviously, you were a frequent visitor to Disneyland. And that must have made quite an impression.
1: You know, it really does. And I think for all of us, we can usually point back to something that was immersive, something that was so complete around us, so flawless, like seeing a movie or some particular thing or going to a national park where every single element of an experience fits. It's all there. The chirping of the birds, the smell of the pine, everything makes Yosemite what it is. And it just kind of takes you over. We're designed, we're created for that. And so I felt like going to Disneyland as a kid, and my dad just told me this story after the fireworks were over and we were standing on Main Street, and I think I was probably five. He says, what do you think, Eddie? You know, because parents want to know that they validated the fortune they spent to get you in there. (laughs) Even then. Even then. And we didn't have much money. We had to save trading stamps to get in, you know. And I said, well, I like Disneyland, Dad. And he goes, oh, good, good. And my dad said, it was really weird. He said he says, you looked up and grabbed my sweater and said, no, I like Disneyland. And it was one of these things where these are life-changing moments, you know, and, the second one was 20th Century Fox. For a brief time, you could take a walking tour of 20th Century Fox. And it was a box lunch for five bucks. And they were filming the Barbra Streisand epic Hello Dolly at the time, which the whole studio was built to look like New York City in 1890. And already being a Disney fanatic at about eh, 10 years old, we took the tour. And once we walked out of some administration office where they had built the sets, literally on the exterior of some accountant's office, the door opens and there you are new york 1898 and i looked at my mom just like my dad and said this is better than disneyland mom i want to meet the man that did this as the tour guide walked us down where of course they filmed the famous parade sequence every few feet the tour guide would have us look back and i said well, what are we doing and he look back and he said look back and you'd see how fake it was. So it looked perfectly real, like you're in the middle of 10 blocks of New York in 1890 with an elevated train and all these wonderful things. It was so immersive. But then you look back and it was like going and seeing how David Copperfield does a magic trick. And that make-believe on an epic scale to me was those two things are what really made me want to be a Disney Imagineer. And of course, like all of us, we'll go on the pirate ride or something like this. And back then, animatronics was very space age. It wasn't Teddy Ruxpin something really from another world.
0: That's right. It took real work and real money and real ingenuity.
1: Yeah, I hope some of your listeners feel the same way.
0: Well, I think a lot of our listeners probably had similar experiences, certainly at an important theme park that really sparked the imagination. But apart from being a visitor, you actually immersed yourself and became a creator of these (laughs) very things. That's quite a step. It's one thing to go on a pirate ride or into a magic castle. It's another thing to create them. We've talked before, Eddie, about how it's it's not just the big image the big picture the big idea but it's the little details too everything from the music to the smells the the tempo the everything
1: it it is it is totally everything and great production designers in film and the, and remember Walt Disney could never get the Disneyland he wanted from architects The architects did a pragmatic kind of design. Yeah, that's okay. But in order to get emotion, in order to immerse people in another world, you really need people from the movies. And production designers in film, they think about the details. And I've interviewed, it's kind of been my life quest to go after these elderly production designers who did some of our famous films like The Godfather or The French Connection or whatever these various films are and meet with them and say, what is your secret? How is it you really emotionally alter someone's mood? Because to me, a theme park really needs to do the same thing, except it's backwards. It's funny. In a movie, you already have a script. In a theme park, people pretty much, they're going to go under that railroad station at Disneyland and almost like a movie theater, instead of finding seats, they're in the movie.
0: So they become the actor almost
1: you do become the actor. You are the protagonist. So how do you score an environment in reverse? How do you create and design it? Well, you have to have the skills of a set designer where it's more about the theater than the architecture. You also have to say everything matters. Experiential design is about the smell, the sound, everything you're touching. This one production designer that did the conversation.
0: Oh, what a great movie that was. The one with Gene Hackman?
1: Yes, yes. Well, okay. So Dean Tavalaris was the production designer. And I said, Dean, tell me a little story, some kind of story about the conversation. He says, well, we would get to the location very, very early on in the shooting. I would have a lot of time to make these rooms great, but to really help the actor and never tell the actor, but help the actor completely be in the scene I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to start filling the pockets. And by the way, this is not the production designer's core job. I'm going to fill Gene Hackman's pockets with things his character would have had. So while he's acting out the part, he's going to reach in his coat pocket and he's going to feel something. You know what it is? It's the key to his desk drawer or the key to his apartment, or there's going to be Tums in there because he's going through a lot of stress right now. See, this is someone, and and these are the guys that I wanted to learn from and did learn from. I don't really have a formal college education. I learned from people in the movies. And so you learn from these people and they say, wow. You knew enough about what Gene Hackman was going through before he walked into the door to your set and after he walked out that you could put Tums in his pocket. And when the actor's (laughs) doing his role, he puts his hand in his pocket and his character probably doesn't even notice it because it's so natural to the scene. So when I worked on some of these projects for Disney, like Main Street, you know, Main Street has background music that plays and that's part of this experience. Everything matters, right? But how do you choose the right music that doesn't distract from it? So I used to sit on a bench at Disneyland with a CD player back in those days and have like 11 hours of music in a bag and sit with a pad and listen to the music and watch the clip clop of the horses, listen and watch the the pace of the vehicles and the people. Because Main Street, the story of that Victorian street, when you enter Disneyland, it's a little town that's wrapped up in change. The Tums in the pocket in this kind of situation is how do you capture the tempo and communicate it to our actors who don't even know they're the actors. You're just the guest. Imagine Main Street was caught up in change. And so how do you communicate that? So I would listen to this music and only choose the songs that moved exactly at the tempo of the horses or the cars or the people. So subliminally, when you're walking down the street, and by the way, the soundtrack changes day to night because at night... Mm everything is quiet and you're tired and you're going home and it's like twinkling music boxes versus a marching band because you're arriving at Disneyland. We want to reassure you and make it feel good. So it's about designing emotion, Robert, you're designing emotions. And so the emotions I felt as a child watching the fireworks and I could hear little voices in the upstairs windows that were playing on soundtracks and all those kind of little things made me want to Make those worlds because I preferred those worlds to the world of Orange County or the or <laughs> suburbia or whatever it was. I thought, boy, if I was only in Disneyland and not sitting on my lawn with a garden hose or something. So, those are the things that inspired me to want to be an Imagineer. And of course, you had Knott's Berry Farm, you had Disneyland, you had a lot of little escapes like that. And we didn't have a lot of money. So, Knott's became pretty much a, a place I went to a lot only because. It was free at the time. You could go to Ghost Town, and and Knotts was very real, different dynamic than Disneyland. It was much more of a living museum that Disneyland was sort of an enameled, romanticized Broadway musical of history.
0: Eddie, that reminds me, going back to the theme of Main Street that you were talking about, where's the automobile going? Where are cars going into the future as we leave one technology and embrace another?
1: Well, you know, it seems like when we were designing Main Street, I had to study light fixtures, and there was such thing as gas electric fixtures, where you had a gas-powered lamp that also had a conduit inside of it with an electric light bulb. So you could imagine in someone's home a gas fixture lighting with a match, and right below it is an electric light bulb. That could blow the house up These are <laughs> gas electric fixtures because the electricity was not reliable yet you couldn't depend a hundred percent on it so when i first saw the hybrids like the prius i looked back at main street a hundred years hence 1890 to 1990 or 1900 to 2000 and said, wow, we are in this gas electric world. We're in this awkward, inefficient thing where they have to put two engines in a car. One of them powers the other. If we really believe in form follows function, it's intrinsically awkward. So you kind of go, well, this is somewhat inefficient. It's this neither world. In the world we live in today, and that we're recording this in this particular time, the price of gas fluctuates from somebody's paying you to take it to 80 bucks a barrel. (laughs) What does that do to the electric car business when no one's really figured it out yet? It's kind of like uh, Edison. I don't know if you know this, was to sell direct current, which required a lot of substations. That's right. And making houses with that was frying elephants in public demonstrations, hooking them <laughs> up and electrocuting them to show you how dangerous Nikola Tesla's alternating current was. That's right. This is very much like uh, Elon Musk and Tesla. And then finally, the big automakers, the dinosaurs, tails on fire, thanks to him. And they go, we need to be building electric car. We need to be doing lots. Even though Porsche built one in 1900.
0: That's Let's right. Let's go
1: do that. But of course, the range isn't fully solved, battery disposal. There's a million issues, even the cost of electricity skyrocketing and killing gas. And I think it's awkward right now. It may get there, but I always wonder, are we just trading one solution for another? That's right. And frankly, no one ever forced the internal combustion engine to get super clean, except recently with uh, PZEV vehicles and things like this.
0: And aren't they amazing now? And I And mean, are they amazing? Almost zero pollution vehicles.
1: Almost zero pollution vehicles. So I thought, well, it's kind of like silent movies got to be a high art form. They started with pie in the face and they finally ended up with Metropolis.
0: That's right.
1: Then they put sound in it. I go, well, it'd be much easier just to plug it in and talk. Now we don't have to think about emotion and, and facial expressions. We can just Abbott and Costello or Laurel and Hardy and different people. So, and that's okay too. But I feel like we're in this very main street inefficient, awkward kind of thing where the Thomas Edison is Elon Musk at this point. And even in movies, they had patent wars where people were blowing up people's movie cameras. You've got all these fighting technologies like what's going to happen to hydrogen? I got hired by Toyota to do a display on hydrogen vehicles years ago. And they were like, we really
0: haven't figured this out yet. I think people are still scared of the Hindenburg. And oh, the humanity. All the myths that sort of accrue with that. Though a yeah. hydrogen could be a very interesting solution if there were actually an infrastructure to support it.
1: Yeah. And to make it worse, you've got the COVID thing or just basically to say outbreaks and cleanliness and shared experiences being a concern. And then you've got electric cars and ride sharing with higher car and people taking inventory and turning it into these other means of people becoming an occupation and autonomous driving. I don't know. My Siri still doesn't work. I don't know how the same people that brought me the Siri that doesn't understand me is going to also drive
0: me around town. (laughs) Ensure that you get someplace safely without taking out a school bus full of kids. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's going to also decide about the age of who it runs over.
0: Right, right. Yeah,
1: so there's so many uh, interesting issues out there, but I, I think it's exciting to say the least I do feel like we're at this great opportunity though of experience. And I feel like the combustion engine and the feel of the sports car is an endangered species as it becomes commoditized, or it becomes the next theme park attraction where there's tracks and you can come out and drive these internal combustion beasts. They're the greatest things in the world. And we do give you a pure experience, it's kind of like the Porsche Experience Center. I think it's an interesting idea that the LA traffic is so bad. You can buy this thing and the only place you can actually enjoy it is when you give us $500 to drive it around. Or drive one of them around, which I applaud them for doing it. And we're going to show you what this thing can do. Um, It's kind of like the person who collects art and then finally goes to an art academy and learns the value of what they have. It's sort of like, wow, I, I didn't know my painting could do that for me or my art could do that for me now that I understand the life of the artist that painted it. It's the same thing with sports cars. Until you really have those driving lessons, you're really not going to get the real experience out of the ownership other than the horsepower wars of bragging to your friends, you've got 40,000 horsepower.
0: You're absolutely right. Well, maybe that's the future of the automobile then, much like equestrian Pursuits. It goes off-road and it goes somewhere else.
1: You know who's interested in that is Miles Collier and the Revs Institute, they're interested. Down in
0: Florida, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've I've, I've spoken with them about experience. They're very interested in the future of passing on and handing on the love of automobiles and cars. The Revs Institute is there. There's a lot of different firms. I like the car driving museums because the one here in El Segundo where they tell you there's a muscle car or there's a, a 39 Buick or something you can ride around in. I feel like, if you don't take these things and create new memories with them, no generation is going to want to preserve them. So the LAX restaurant we designed when I was back at Disney, a jet set Barbarella meets James Bond kind of experience in that Paul Williams building in the middle the terminal, the Encounter Restaurant was a project we did mm-hmm. years ago. People fell in love with it. It wasn't the original interior because there really wasn't much of an interior. It was called the theme building with no theme. So we did something that really would be romantic. It brought back the thrill of the jet set, what people love about jet set travel. Well, if you make memories there, people will want to keep the building because something in their life happened there. That's right. Well, these cars, unless we keep putting them out there where people have a way of experiencing what's wonderful about them and loving them, I feel like unfortunately in time... These wonderful cars we love so much, these internal combustion cars, sports cars and stuff, they're going to become like these railroads in Colorado where you can ride the Denver and Rio Grande or you can ride this. And people go, wow, I wish we had one of these in our neighborhood. How do we keep them special? Because I don't think it's right to dumb them down with smog devices. It's not right to dumb them down into this factory built version of what a Jag was. It's
0: never going to be an XKE.
1: No, it's not. But then how do we take the XKE and put it in a way that people don't just look at it? We're not a look at it world anymore. We're in a do it world where people have to touch it and love it. How do we demonstrate these things and not a video game? And video games are helpful. They help expose people to it. They really do. They get people into doing digital versions of cars that can't afford it. I think that's a good entry point. But how do we lead them to real things, like frankly, getting my daughter to help work on cars or my son to do his own customizing? How do we get them in loving the mechanics of doing? And by the way, it makes you feel alive when you've accomplished something. It's self-respect. It's dignity you're giving to people, you know? It's
0: absolutely true. When somebody actually has the experience of accomplishing something and doing it well, or even failing and finally learning how to do it well, that's an absolutely invaluable experience. To be able to do that, makes all the difference in the world. And then all of a sudden, somebody really takes ownership of the skill and they love that thing even more.
1: My convertible top wouldn't go up and it needed new hydraulics. The hydraulic cylinders had gone out. So I was so afraid. I was terrified. I just thought of the fluid leaking all over the interior and it's going to come back in through this seat. Okay, so after watching some YouTube videos and people thought, well, this can't be that bad. And I thought, can I do this? After doing that myself and doing a swap out with the exchange, I thought, you know what? I feel so good.
0: That's right. And then other people would go, right. "You
1: mean you would worked on your own car? What, what are you doing? Why are you?" I'm like, because I could.
0: That's right.
1: And I enjoyed it. And I and now I'm part of the car because I did that. Yeah, I'm not going to do my fuel pump. I'm not going to drain the tank, and I don't have the right lifts. There's certain things I respect a Porsche whisperer to do, but I just encourage this idea that bring parents and kids together around those kind of activities versus going to Color me mine and making a coffee mug or something. <laughs> well, you know, here's these cars, these cool things. And I think, unfortunately, the modern cars are too intimidating. Yeah, they are. They've locked you out of this great experience. A father and son experience is not a code reader.
0: That's right. <laughs> but that's part of it. But you can still wash a car together, thankfully. And that's where some of the best memories start.
1: You know, you could totally do it.
0: Well, you know, Eddie, for someone who claims not to have spent time at the university, your education is obviously quite broad and deep, and you've gotten a PhD in something that's very, very special, (laughs) and that's the ability to carry Mm. people into different worlds. Clearly, Disney was a springboard for that, but I know that uh, since that time, you've done some fascinating projects and under the aegis of Soto Studios LA, which you established in 2004. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I left Disney. I quit Disney in about two thousand felt like I'd done everything that I could do and just started exploring the internet and several other things and began to look at how can I take these wonderful lessons of collaboration, kind of like the film business, and designing for emotion, which kind of addicts people to coming to places over and over. You yeah. think about how valuable that is in any business, whether it's a restaurant or anything else, what makes them come back? And so I thought, well, it's kind of funny. I go to restaurants and the lighting is bad or the music is bad. And people saying, boy, you know, the food is great. But if they only did these three things, they would have a home run here. So I thought, boy, you know, I could really take what I've learned. I'm going to have to figure out a way to verbalize it or make it a better process and also be able to do it in not necessarily a themed way where it looks like a specific theme, but just make emotional environments cars are very emotional. So it was funny. After I'd started the company, I was on a flight to London and I was making a cocktail because this all goes back to those Corgi toys, right? <laughs> making a cocktail at the bar in the Virgin first-class lounge on the aircraft in the middle of the night it was dark. And I'd been watching a movie on my laptop and I got up and I brought all my own martini accoutrements with me of the right olives and the right this and the right, because they don't have
0: that on the plane. And who right drinking martini enthusiast wouldn't do that. Hats off to you. And this is
1: before the TSA would throw you off, you know, for exploding olives or something. Right, I had a little baggie with all this stuff (laughs) in it. I thought, well, I'm going to make my own martinis. And I'll unfortunately have to use whatever gin that they had at the time. So I'm up there making this thing at three in the morning in the plane in the dark. And a gentleman comes up to me. And I don't know, maybe in the dark thought I worked there or something. And uh, hey, wow, what are you having? I said, well, I make you one. I got plenty. So I made, made him a drink. So we had this conversation and this gentleman had just gotten the contract to build an Aston Martin dealership in Los Angeles. I go, you're going back to LA too? Yes, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know, I really want something exclusive. I want something that's going to blow a billionaire away or that's going to be different, but I've got this room and I've got this idea, something that James Bond would frequent. I go, this is really ironic. If you look down in seat 4A over there, you can see Diamonds Are Forever is paused on my laptop. He goes, really? And I says, yeah. I says, you know, if you really want something that feels like a Bond film, that's a wonderful idea. So I don't know, we traded seats and did this and that. And he sat with me and this happened to be Bo Bachman, who is, was the marketing director, but now pretty much runs the show over at Galvin Motors, who was doing Jaguar and Aston Martin. And I think of any dealer, he's very innovative in customization. So I have to credit him. He was like, if I could get a Disney Imagineer to create, what would you do that would be emotionally exciting? He totally understood this idea of emotion. So I said, well, look, let's take this as a prototype. Let's create the anti-showroom. Let's just create something that's so wonderful that pays off any childhood dream of buying a DV11 and says, I feel (laughs) like I'm in a Bond villain's lair with a martini at the bar designing my own car.
0: Well, Eddie, you certainly achieved that. I remember before I had actually met you, I had an opportunity to go to the Aston Martin showroom at Galpin in Los Angeles right after they had opened, and it blew my mind. It was the most remarkable car shopping experience I've ever had. I actually came close to buying a DB9, but I bought something else whose name shall not be spoken. It was a remarkable <laughs> consumer experience. And really, that kind of gets it at the nub of what you do. You create an experiential design that goes well beyond the product being offered for sale. It's something that keeps people coming back. Talk about some of the details, because I suspect a lot of our listeners haven't seen the showroom.
1: Well, it's on our website, sodostudios.com. You can go look at that and see it and watch video on it and so forth. But, And I have to credit Bo Bachman. I mean, it's his dream, and what I was able to do is kind of of productize it and kick it up quite a few notches and turn it into something that you could actually I come from sales my first jobs at as a 19 year old married was selling washers at Sears And those same methods from being in retail and sales, you have to understand that and work with the sales staff. You can't just build a pretty room. Pretty rooms don't sell cars, but inconspicuous consumption does. So imagine walking through a secret door and Bo wanted a thumb reader, which I thought was a genius idea. It was a (laughs) thumb reader that the salesperson does and literally a cylindrical airlock opens with red leather. Of course, Aston. they wanted to do all kinds of different things, and Bo just blew them off, basically, and did what he wanted, which is, I think, incredibly cool. And so you go into this airlock, and you're just in this silver cylinder, and then another cylindrical door opens up, and the door opens. You hear the strains of this remixed John Barry music, and you walk into this lounge, and there before you, kind of like with a veil of lingerie over it is this DB9, Or Vanquish, or actually they premiered the 177 there.
0: Oh, right, later on, yeah. Yeah,
1: oh, it was fantastic. I got to to see some great cars. And so they had a push button that literally could part the drapes and you would see the car on a turntable with a gun barrel ceiling and mirror over it. And I would just think to myself, you know, if I had made it and I wanted to spend 300K and just go crazy on a car, why am I going to a dealer and sitting with some guy with a bunch of swatches? Is that it? (laughs) No, really. I'm thinking, is that it? Why is that it? Come on, can't you do better? And that's kind of my approach to everything. I said, what would I want? So first of all, I would want to sit at a cocktail bar. And I'm not getting the car today. I'm not driving it today, taking it home. I'm going to design the car. I want to see a visualization screen up there. And I want to see this car. And basically, you know what I'm going to do? I want my wife's treatment. I want Tiffany's for men. Yeah. So I kind of go, okay, how can we take the breakfast at Tiffany's Cartier experience and steal just the magic of that and combine it with automotive? So we did beautiful velvet lined drawers with velvet trays, like a jewelry store. You know, how they put the velvet down, Robert, they put the rings sure. on the velvet. They have a particular light. Okay. Why is the lighting on samples of all the car paint? Perfect lighting. If you're going to make a choice like that, it better be perfect. It's not some guy in the corner of the show and go, well, you know, we got the uh, Brazilian blue and well, no, we're going to do this, this cool thing. So we did that. So everything is presented to you. And first of all, nobody likes salesmen. Let's change the identity of the salesman to being a bartender, a host. So the salesperson is no longer some sales guy. The salesperson is serving you like you would at Neiman Marcus, like you would at Bergdorfer or any place else like that. And Stanley Marcus was a good friend of mine and taught me a lot about service and how you treat people. So I thought, how can I take some of the Stanley Marcus wisdom, take some of the Tiffany's wisdom, and do this bar? And Bo already knew he wanted a bar of some kind, but I I was just trying to inspire that kind of relationship where the salesman's not looking at the screen at your credit rating, but you're not. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the horrible truth of it all. I mean, people don't like salesmen because so many things have been done wrong. How do we change the relationship where the salesman's a pal? And Galpin, to their credit, had brought in some salespeople that were true car fanatics, so they could talk And Aston, just like any good sommelier, they were the sommelier of that brand. So that was helpful. We had a lounge where you could watch videos of the engineering. I mean, everything always, you always have to make sure your story begins and ends with a car. You're not going to do anything like a movie. You don't have scenes in there that distract from the story. It has to move the story forward. But again, if somebody just wanted to buy it, they could just do that. Here's the fun part. Let's say you do order the car and you design the car and you have that experience. Again, What's the payoff, Robert, when you come back? Imagine if your date of birth was programmed in a time lock of a vault and you press the button on the vault and you undo a giant circular like you'd find in Zurich, this giant vault door, and there is the car you designed in the vault. Boom.
0: (laughs) We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back.
1: A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. I'm currently twenty-one years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended a from
0: you. her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take of care smile. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Trust me, every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being. It's questioned. Going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. We don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty that are... of rock climbing is that you can
1: only focus on what's right in life.
0: And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available
1: on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at slash a moment of your
0: time. And we're back with my guest, Eddie Sato. About this vault door, the first time I saw it, I thought to myself, that thing has got to weigh 10 tons. Is it a real vault door?
1: No, no, no. It's laminate. It's metal laminates on a built hollow. Bo had that built as a hollow vault door. I mean, there's no way that the walls of that cost (laughs) would be astronomical. But again, see, this is the whole thing.
0: It's theater. It was remarkable, just remarkable.
1: You said it, Robert, it's theater. I have
0: never forgotten it. And certainly one of the first automotive customer experiences that really took it to another level. But that's not where you stopped, Eddie. I know that you did a very exciting project for a little Italian car brand called Ferrari. And that was with another friend and client of yours.
1: You know, a Steve Wynn had heard about this Aston thing through someone and and I got a phone call and came out there, and he's an amazing, amazing kind of visionary. Of course, he's the kind of guru that modern Las Vegas is modeled on or his his contributions. but so I go into the conference room, and I really didn't know him. you know he he's I brought you here for a reason and blah 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 and there's a, a boardroom table there with a, a lot of gentlemen all sitting there in their suits, and I'm just at the table next to him. Now he has vision issues. his macular degeneration, which is like looking through a paper towel tube. That's about his field of view. Steve Wynn goes, Eddie, and he looks at all of his guys. He says, I got you here for a reason. You're the perfect guy for this dealership. I want it to feel like something because before we draw, pick up pencils or do anything, we're going to think about how it feels. And I couldn't imagine that this guy said that. What an amazing thing. He says, Eddie, get up. So I get up and I walk out of the conference room, go out into the hall, the marble lined hallway with a million assistants and all this stuff. And we go over to like a VHS deck and he pulls this old beat up VHS tape and puts it in and it's got a little monitor. He turns off the background music that's playing in his office lobby. And what does he do? He plays the opening to Le Mans and he's playing this and you're seeing tachometers peg and the whine of Ferraris. And he closes his eyes and I look at him while he's blasting this thing at volume level 12 and I'm just standing next to him and I look up to him, his eyes are closed and it's like he's in an Italian opera. It's like he's listening to Puccini and he hears this, Wah! you know, echoing through the hallways and then he hits the stop button. He goes, that's what I want. So we go back into the room and he goes, well, Eddie and I now, we, you know, we've, we've thought about this and now we know what we want to do. And I played for him what I want it to be like. So we talked about the primal appeal of Ferrari. And it's like a beautiful human body.
0: There's certainly a primal scream about that engine when it pegs the tachometer.
1: You know what? Yeah. And I kind of had to pry him a little bit. I said, well, you know, the cars are not in motion. We're not going to be playing that little. I had to kind of pin him down. I says, but what about this idea that it's like a sculpture gallery in Rome of Bernini's when you go up in the park and you go to that museum and you see all the beautiful Bernini's. What about like almost like a, a sculpture gallery? Because the Ferraris are like sculptures. They're, they're, they're in motion, but they're parked. I mean, you're in a showroom. You have to acknowledge that. So we ended up with a shadow box approach where we created turntables in shadow boxes. And Steve had a great idea, which is to have alternating drapes that punched the color of the car. So if you had a black Enzo sitting there, you'd have a yellow drape that was drawn. And if you put a red Enzo there, he would put a black drape and all these things match Ferrari. So the only conflict was that he never told Ferrari I was doing the dealership.
0: <laughs> well, they are proprietary about their brand, but what a space, Eddie.
1: Well, he gets a letter from them that they're ready to start the project. And he calls them and I'm in the room and he calls uh, Mr. Montezelmo and tells them, he says, hey, Luca, uh, you know, I've got Eddie Soto here. We're finished. Luca's like, uh, Steve, what are you talking about? Nobody does Ferrari, but Ferrari. And I'm like, well, Luca, we're done. I love what Eddie has done here. I know, Steve, but nobody does Ferrari, but Ferrari. What well, Ferrari? You can't have Eddie's owner. You can't have nobody do it. And Steve is very adamant that Las Vegas is different. You can't just cookie cutter a dealership in here, that he does everything his own way. That's very, very special. And I have to say, he stuck up for the design and said, he said this in a rather pointed Las Vegas way. You're going to have an open mind. Eddie and I are going to fly over there and I'll show you. And, and to his credit, Michael Schumacher comes in, everybody comes in, looks at it, and they love the design. And we built it. I think this, Robert, here's a good secret for the listeners. Because Steve was limited visually, he could close his eyes and imagine an experience. We did a restaurant that was going to be a Ferrari restaurant, but something fell apart in that deal and it didn't end up being branded that way. But Steve could remember these things and visualize every table and every customer and how social the restaurant would be. And he'd say, no, let's have one less table. And by the way, that's a lot of money you're losing when you do that. He said, let's one less table. Let's do it this way. Let's do it that way. So Steve, I, I just had tremendous admiration for his experience. No wonder he had mastered these casinos because he understands the human factor and experience so well. And so I felt honored to have that opportunity to do the Ferrari job. And even though those are two very adamant bedfellows, to be in the middle of that was a little tenuous at times, but I think the result both parties were really happy with.
0: Certainly the Ferrari showroom is one of the most remarkable retail experiences that exists in the car world. So Eddie, what's the sound component to some of your experiences
1: A lot of this starts with me because I have to stay in the groove of what I'm doing. So I'm kind of like a method actor. If I'm doing a Ferrari showroom, I listen to music all day long and it's all I'm listening to while I'm drawing that relates to that to keep my mind so I am mentally in that world. So for example... The Ferrari restaurant that we were doing at the Wynn Resort, I took some of the music that I had been listening and immersing myself with and then added in Ferrari engine sounds to the Bossa Nova soundtrack to kind of get that emotional European sensual vibe of what Ferrari is. So we ended up playing these things like I always make the music loop for every project that does play in the restaurant from Rivera to a theme park, anywhere. Music production is part of it because it's so much a part of the show. For example, here's some of the music from the Ferrari project. ¶¶
0: You know, Eddie, I remember when we met, we had an opportunity to talk about something you'd been kicking around. And I thought, well, I was affiliated with a great magazine called Rob Report at the time, helping them put together an ultimate gift guide, which was an annual issue toward the end of the year. And I'd heard tell that Eddie Sato was in the throes of creating an absolutely remarkable fantasy private jet. Now, private jets are, you know, you could say they're a dime a dozen. Everybody's with half a billion to rub together seems to have a, a Gulfstream or a Falcon or an Embraer or whatever. But for you, those projects weren't good enough. And you created something called Sky Yacht One and we published it in the magazine and it was a sensation. Why don't you tell me about the genesis of that plane?
1: (laughs) As I remember, and you can correct me, you know, you say, hey, Eddie, why don't you create something for the gift guide? And I said, well, you know, I've designed this beautiful bronze pool table, modern, modern, modern bronze pool table, solid bronze where the balls actually returned back onto the table. Well, that's cool, but that's not big enough. Come on, think bigger. What, what else has been rattling around in your brain that you've always wanted to do? I said, well. That, I,
0: I'm going to interrupt because I have to ask. Was that a project that you developed in conjunction with Rivera, the great restaurant downtown?
1: It was. It was. It was a. Beautiful
0: uh, interior design that was. Every piece, every chair, every <laughs> oh, casting. What a well, brilliant thing.
1: And we didn't have a, a tremendous amount of money. We had to really pull favors to do it. But we had bronze tequila tasting chairs, these modern bronze thrones. That's right, that's that are right. these bronze bronze tequila tasting chairs with tray tables that pop out for your flights of tequila. And they got a lot of press and that was the idea. And so I thought, why well, I love this design. People are crazy about it. Why don't I just do a batching pool tables and I have the rights to the design. So I thought, well, why don't we just make those chairs for people so they could have a pool table and they could have the bronze chairs and their super ultra modern Elon Musk man cave kind of a place and have this really cool thing. So that was kind of in my brain, but you kind of pushed me to think further like, what have you not done that you'd really want to do? And I said, well, I'll tell you. I think the beige barrier in aircraft has never been broken.
0: <laughs> Isn't that a fact? Is there anything more repulsive than most so-called luxury private jet interiors? It's like going into a Montgomery Ward furniture showroom with hide upholstered Barca loungers, and every darn one of them is beige.
1: They aren't. It's because of resale value. They're like, oh, the only person who would love this is another person who likes to sit in a stick of butter, these giant, huge seats. (laughs) Coming from another industry is always very valuable. So I kind of came and looked at this and said, you know something? Why is it something, an aircraft, like the interior of this plane, why is it less interesting and frankly, not as well-designed inside as your Bentley. In other words, the people that could afford that plane are driving better cars than their planes. That's so you're right. getting out of that, or you're, or you're sitting there wearing a Cartier watch, and you say, well, see, where's the providence of design? You know, like these, for example, like a Santos watch. Those things all come from, frankly, Santos is aviation. But right. if you look back at all these things, I thought, why can't I bring legacy of luxury like you would find in Hermes, which comes, for, of course, from equestrian. Why can't we bring some DNA into the airplane and not just That's have engineers right. running the show That's and right. people picking carpets? It's just, it, we're just throwing it away, and the aircraft companies really don't want to work too hard. They just want to do things like this, except Embraer. So Embraer, they're not Gulfstream, right? They're Embraer. That's
0: right. They're Avis. They have to work harder.
1: They try harder. And their design director was like, Eddie, I just want the imagination. What would you do? And I said, well, I got a chance to be in a magazine. And they love your lineage 1000E. They would like to see, and that was a request.
0: We might've had an aviation editor at the time.
1: The aviation editor says, I want to see something in a lineage. And so I called my friend that was in design at Embraer. That's a big jet. That's like an E-190. That's almost a BBJ. It's like right between those two. I go, I love that size because it's sort of under the radar, off the nose. It's not this big bulbous BBJ. It could be sleek like a sailboat because the the fuselage is sleek. So taking the Providence and taking this modern jet, I thought this idea of bringing providence from one medium like a boat to a plane, it could work. The DC-3 turned into a, like an amazing boat. Why can't I go backwards and take Errol Flynn's Zaka or take some of these great sailboats that have all the wood and all the brass and a lot of the magic out of Chris Craft and Riva and throw it into the interior of an airplane and make it British campaign style meets Fornasetti in this amazing interior. So <laughs> what if a yacht could fly? Cause most people that can buy a plane know what yachts are and love yachts, but you know yachts unfortunately have become living rooms of Brentwood houses instead of feeling like a boat. That's right. I go. That feel is not even anywhere anymore. It's unless you have a sailboat and you're willing to do that.
0: Absolutely you've true. You've lost it. You'd it's may as all well be in the living room.
1: Yeah, it's a mid-century interior with a plank deck. So I thought, well, let's just do that. And so this thing went viral, I think, after you published it three times in every major magazine from Town & Country to Stern and Paris Match and, and all sorts of places. And I actually, more than any theme park notoriety I've had for doing that kind of work, I'm more known for these airplanes. And then the second one we did.
0: Well, the second one was, you talk about a sequel. Most sequels aren't anywhere near the original, but clearly Sky Yacht 1 wasn't everything you had to say. Explain to our listeners what Sky Ranch was. That was sort of the antithetical Sky Yacht. It was a whole different way of looking at a private aircraft.
1: Well, you know, Amber Air partnered on the Sky Yacht and they promoted it and they put it as part of like, what can you do with a blank page, a green aircraft, as they say, when you can do anything you want inside. What can you do with a lineage? And they promoted it. And it got them an unprecedented amount of hits on their website. So they were very much interested. They said, well, what else can you do? What are we going to do next year? What is going to top this? And looking around at the culture and society and looking at people, we are so inundated with our devices and everything going on. Isn't it true that when you get in an airplane, especially a private plane, you're kind of on your own. You're up in a tranquil environment. And I thought, well, if people have a boat and they have a plane. They also have a ranch somewhere. You got something, Jeff Bezos has a ranch in Texas. I mean, everybody's got a ranch in the south of France or somewhere.
0: I know I have a few. Well, you Uh, might have a few. Yeah, I have one in my mind.
1: In your mind. And I thought, you know, this ranch state of mind of, of tranquil thinking space, people like to meditate, take the materials and not make them so precious, make them a little bit worn. Nobody had done that in a plane and not fake aging, but just using materials that had a certain warmth to them so you can come in your jeans. If you look at fine restaurants that are charging 80 or $90 or more for a steak, you're also eating them at some picnic table with an Edison light bulb over you, and you're like, "Whatever, where's the white tablecloth?" Well, that's not today. That's so, I thought, right. well, what if I could create a relaxed aircraft that the patina on the leather would just get more beautiful every year, like a saddle? Mm-hmm. And this notion of a saddle and studying—I I did a deep dive, kind of like you do—into researching. Quest baits saddles, Aramis saddles, all these different saddles, and said, so let's do modular seats. If you want to charter your plane like a saddle, the components are removable. We can add your birthstone. We can do rifle engraving. We could kind of do this earth-inspired aircraft with Tiger eye in the entry and things like that. And, That's right. and a beer tap. Like nobody ever put a beer tap in a plane that I've seen that would look good. So we did bison horn window frames. And that won an award. I was shocked. It it got an award against a lot of big companies that do this for a living for Best Private Jet Concept.
0: Well, it's certainly a David and Goliath story because this is really fundamentally your own creation, Eddie. I I know you had some help with renderings and whatnot, but you really get to focus on every single detail. And as I say, you leave no stone unturned. I recall looking at some of the drawings for Sky Ranch and saying to myself, why didn't I think of that? That's when you realize you found something (laughs) really, really fantastic. And one aspect of that particular aircraft that was naturally a focal point was the observation window.
1: You know, and I'm glad you mentioned that because Jay Beaver, the design director at Embraer, was instrumental in making this happen. And so a lot of these innovations and things that I was drawing up and dreaming, he would look at these things and say, Do you know, Eddie, I just worked on a plane that has a giant window in it. I go, really? And it was a beautiful design written up all over the place, kind of a Japanese-looking environment, with a big, giant window. And they had just done, I think, a window. It's the size of an exit door that was in a Coast Guard plane. So it isn't vaporware. These are real things these people really wanted to do. Because was, and he's always, even on Sky Yacht, said, look, here's some patents. Here's cool things for you to productize. And I think part of the big wow factor of the published look of that aircraft is certainly that giant window that wouldn't be there if Embraer didn't bring their engineering and design prowess to the table and say, hey, look. Here's the toy box. Here's some cool things that we could work into this design if you wanted to.
0: The concept of our ranch and having all that wide open space is certainly conveyed by the vista that, that you could see through that window between the captain's seats.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of times people have their own dreams, which is great. And so I'm just putting these ideas out there to free people up from the beige barrier and say, you know, if you want something a little different, maybe you don't go this far. What would you like to see in there? I'm the advocate, like I was at Disney, for. I can't say perfection because that's sort of an unattainable, but I can certainly say, we're going to reward your close inspection, is one client demanded of me. He goes, Eddie, build (laughs) me a room that rewards my close inspection. I go, well, you know, that's very expensive because that means the closer you are, the more detail there is. And he says, I'm willing to do that. I just don't want to be let down. Don't let me down. So I think that's the whole thing is that to me, it's what you put on the screen. It's the result that you're judged by. The renderings are beautiful and all that, but you have to be able to do the harder thing and get things certified through the vendors because it's very difficult. You know, you do a different seat that has That's to be right. certified, burn tested and so forth. But I put together a team of people that are up for that and are insanely intelligent. And we have the patience. If the client wants to do something, I'm there to get you what you want, not just settle. My other clients just say, don't settle.
0: <laughs> so, Well, that's certainly a unique approach to creative problem solving in a world that really tends to take the easy way out in so many occasions. And you're sure. Sure fortunate to have been able to envision some of these projects. We're going to wrap up this episode, but come back next time as I continue my conversation with Eddie Sato about the intersection of experience and luxury on Cars That Matter. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by A.J. Mosley, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by A.J. Mosley and Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media.
1: Media for your mind.